0: Well, I guess it's time. I can't procrastinate this any longer. I hope I remember what I prepared, but I want to start by asking the Lord blessing to speak through me this morning. Dear Father in Heaven, Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together, to come together as a church family, but today to come together on a special occasion that was instituted by you we ask, your Lord, that we live up to your expectations today and that our behaviors, our thoughts, our minds will continue to be transformed by your love. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to move a mic. I won't step on it. Um, today... I'm going to use some words, and part of this was founded in a Review and Herald article that came out about six years ago. Jerry Lutz, I think, was the person behind it, and I've used some of the ideas out of that, and I've mixed it with some of my own. But it was a a thought that touched me, and it was a thought that on the day that I've kind of looked forward to to a communion service to relate, because it's, it's a different approach, and it's, it's just some thoughts on Christ and who he was and what was happening in that upper room. I invite you to turn with me to John 13. Most of what I'm saying, I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading it, but the context is there in John 13. And I love the book of John because the book of John talks about love. And it talks about John who had a relationship with Jesus that was very special and could feel things that sometimes I don't know that I could even feel. He had that, that, that gift to be able to feel and relate. And our scripture reading today is John 13, 6. And it says, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And I'm just picturing this tough Peter as Jesus starts to talk about washing his feet. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. How many of you have ever been in an elevator before? How many like being in an elevator? Hey, we got one back there, we got a couple. How about those Sears Tower type elevators that go way up, way down, right? What do the rest of us do when we get into an elevator? You go quiet, right? What else? You do nothing, right? Gaze up, you look at the numbers, man, now know how close am I to my floor. If you're lucky, you look at the button. You know, they've done studies on these elevators and they found that when somebody enters an elevator, if it's by themselves, they'll stand kind of right in the middle towards the back of the elevator. Somebody else comes on the elevator, guess what happens? That person moves to the back corner. And where does the other person stand? At the diagonal from that person. What happens when you add a third person to that elevator? There's a triangle formed. That's exactly right. Four people, you get the square box. By the fifth person, it's kind of all up in the air. People are just kind of moving over, and you're starting to, you need a, do you need a number? You know, please don't push me, that type of thing. Elevators are an awkward space. And the reason is, if we think about it, we have a space around us. It's about 12 to 24 inches, and it's defined in American culture as about that distance. It's a little bit smaller in some other cultures, but it's your personal space. It's that intimate space. As individuals, we protect this space and we get very uncomfortable. You might think about it as a bubble of security that we preserve around us. And it's very interesting. It's a psychological zone and it's something that can't be seen, but has anybody ever had somebody come and talk to you right here? And what happens? You feel it, don't you? It's a feeling. It's really there. It's something very real. And it's interesting because even animals have this where they protect the zone around them. And it's a natural, natural distinction. But you know, back in 1966, it goes way back, Edward Hall, he was an anthropologist and a cross-cultural communication researcher, and he developed a diagram of how what this looks. And Vicki, if you could put that slide up. There we go. Maybe it's been up all this time. I don't know. And I can't see it because it's not on the slide on that end, but we'll work with this one. If you think about it, the intimate zone is the zone that 12 to 18 inches, it's within touching distance. That's a distance that we protect. And it's a space that is reserved for people who genuinely care about each other. Lovers hold hands. Parents carry their children, put their arms around them. But it's rare to see this space penetrated in a, in a work setting. You know, it's, it's, it's a place where it's for people that you trust. It's for people that you love. When it's managed effectively, there are people that will break this space. If you're working with a coworker and you're looking at a screen and you trust them, oh, that's okay, shoulder to shoulder might be okay. But this is a space that we protect. The next zone out is the friend zone or some call it the personal zone. It's kind of a fun one to look at. It's two to four feet. It's used for discussions that are private but not meant to be overheard. One-on-one type discussions. In a busy networking meeting or at a party, people will avoid breaking this barrier. Have you ever seen two people engaged in conversation? People will avoid actually breaking into that conversation when you're engaged at this level because it's, it's it's a tight zone. And just a little tip, if you ever get into one of those conversations you can't get out of, well, part of the problem is you're locked into one If you back up a foot or two, often someone else will then come in. But if you don't give them that space, they're going to stay out of that zone. So just a little tip for that cocktail party that goes awry somewhere. Then the social zone is 4 to 12 feet apart. This is the space that's used for public and casual social conversations. It allows others to enter a group. This is when you're allowing people to come in and out. And it's a little like a school of fish, kind of bouncing around as people come in and out of the group. And the public or audience zone, that's kind of where you are today. That's where everyone is focused on something. And it would be uncomfortable if you came rushing to the platform right now. This, this is a, a very, it's, it's, it's also the space when you're passing people on the street. How many of you, though, have felt that personal space, that intimate zone, violated? Are there places you like to avoid? Because that space just isn't comfortable. We've mentioned the elevator. Are there any other ones? Anyone ever ride a subway? What happens? You get pushed up against, you get used to it after a while, but boy, at first, it's very, very uncomfortable. How about an airplane? Anybody ever fly Southwest Airlines? What happens? It's open seating, right? Open seating. So which seats fill first? The windows and the aisles, and what happens for the rest? Oh, those poor people have to come and beg. My daughter, Allie, has a strategy for this. She says you get on the plane, you find your seat, and if you're one of the ones that gets the window or aisle, you get your phone out and you look intently at your phone. And then you peek up every once in a while till you find the person you want to sit next to you. And then as they come down the aisle, you just look intently, that's your way of saying no, no, no to all these people, and you look up and give them a smile. It works. I tried it last week. It works even better if you're a 19-year-old girl without her dad there to protect her and keep people away. (laughs) But it's true. It's a a zone that we all protect. And it's, it's a last resort to allow somebody to break that space. But have you noticed that when we read the Gospels, that Jesus often came within the personal space of people who were in need. And he made no apologies for it. He would reach out, he would touch them, even those that had diseases that rendered them untouchable in their society. They had rules around these people. But Jesus would break through and he would ignore these prohibitions. They were poor and pitiable. They needed to feel the touch of someone who cared. They were social outcasts. But he reached out and he touched them anyway. Do you know how important the sense of touch actually is? You know, in newborns, They've done studies on newborns, they've researched this, and it turns out that the sense of touch is something that's developed early in the womb. It's one of the first senses that actually develops in a child far before they're born. Most newborns' innate reflexes are stimulated stimulated by touch. That's why swaddling works, to calm newborns. And it's likely that touch lays at the foundation for the parent-child bond. Anyone who has had a newborn knows how certain touches on the side of the cheek trigger a reaction to nuzzle and try to find their mother's milk, which often leaves the holder with a problem that they can't solve. and You have to find mom. Research has shown that the first contact babies have after birth affects their growth and development, which is why there's so much now working quickly to make skin to skin contact between the child and its mother during the first few days of life. But do do adults need touch? Do they need those feelings as well? Scientists have long known that when people we love are most near, we are happier and healthier. However, in a study done by James A. Cohn, and it's interesting, he did this study where he took women and he would put them into something where he could measure their brain waves. It wasn't a very comfortable study, but he would tell them, I'm going to give you some pain. And he would look to see what would happen when he inflicted this pain on each one of these individuals. And this study was on why, in the study of why we hold hands, he reveals that when that woman touched the hand of her husband or her husband touched her hand, there was an instant drop in the activity in areas of the brain that involved fear, danger, and threat. The woman, he goes on, who had been exposed to this pain while they were scanned were calmer and less stressed when someone held their hand. He found a similar but a little bit smaller effect with the touch of strangers as well. It was very interesting. He said, why do we hold hands? And he said, as he studied this over and over, he said, when you hold hands with someone, you're saying, I am here with you. It's a connection that's made. I am here with you. I am here with you. But as that goes on over time, it becomes, I am you, and you are me. We are here, we are sharing this, and I'm here for you. I will experience this with you. When we touch, we share those feelings. We share that we care, and we grow together to become a unit greater than me or you. It's called touch therapy, or human touch. Jesus knew this, as a designer, Let's face it, he designed us. He knows us. He touched the unlovely. He offered them touch, and he allowed them into his personal space, even those that were told they couldn't come close to anyone. He offered them the sense of touch and healing. He could have healed with his words, but he often touched their eyes. He let them touch him. In Luke 6, 19, it says that everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out of him. And he healed everyone. He could easily have said, don't touch me. But he didn't. He let them come to him. And the crowds just wanted to touch him. And he responded to that. You know the feeling. Is there any feeling better than the feeling of a genuine hug from someone that you trust and that loves you? Someone you have a great relationship with? I have to admit that after our time today, I have to go do a very difficult thing. I have some very close friends. It's been a tough week for us. They lost a son of 22. It was due to addictions. It was a long journey. It's been going on for six to eight years. And we don't know whether it's a relief or a misery. It just feels bad. But I have to say that the silver lining is that while I'm there, I get to see a friend of ours and she gives the best, most welcome hug in the world. When you get a hug from her, it's not rushed, you feel welcomed, you're valued, and for a few seconds, you feel like you're the most important person in the world. That's what touch can do. That's what we can do for each other. Now, let's put this in the context of the upper room, celebrating the communion service. As you know, here, we have what we call the Ordinance of Humility, or the foot-washing service. It's an age-old practice, one that has been in the Christian church for generations, but dropped by, by most. But if we're honest, it's also one of the most dreaded parts of the service for many. Who wants to touch anybody's feet? Right? I understand that. I've felt that. We first have to connect with strangers. I remember being at Andrews, and it was Communion Day. And, oh, oh, we've got to find a partner, and then we've got to do this. And then the deacons would do a great job of sorting it out, which you'd end up with someone you'd never met before. But when you think about it, think about the opportunity missed by those who don't get to kneel down. When you don't kneel down and touch the feet of another human being, especially when that human being may be somewhat of a stranger to you. There's a spiritual connection and a bond that is formed there at that moment an opportunity that you can grow relationships and say, I value you. You are special. It's my pleasure to serve you as Christ would have done, regardless of the condition of your feet. This is what Jesus did for the disciples that day. We're told in John 13 that on the night before he was to be crucified, he took a towel and a basin and he washed his people's feet. This was something that rabbis just did not do for students. It was no wonder that Peter recoiled when it was his turn. He said, Lord, no, you cannot do this. You are the teacher, I am the student. I am your disciple, you cannot do this for me. It's wrong. It was unthinkable to him. But Jesus said, I have to do this for you. If I do not wash your feet, You will no longer be my disciple." Think of the upper room that morning. There was a life-changing touch in that room, at least for one disciple, and I'm sure for the others. A touch of love, a touch of compassion, and of service. They didn't completely understand what they had just experienced. We know that because after he got done, Jesus said, do you understand what I've just done to you? And there were obviously blank looks around that circle. He said, I, your Lord and teacher, have just washed your feet. Then you should wash one another's feet. He was teaching them how to share, how to love each other. I have set an example for you so that you will do just what I have done for you. And the implication is yes, even for perfect strangers. What kind of a leader, what kind of a king does this? No examples of their kings or leaders did this type of thing before. This was one who understood grace and mercy, one who knew his subjects needed to be cleansed. In John 13, the story of the communion begins in love and it ends in love. In John 13, 1, he says he had loved his disciples during his ministry and on earth and now he loved them to the very end. Later, in John 13, 34, he said, So I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other, just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This act of washing their feet fell between these two verses. And it was a personal expression of his love, his demonstration of how to share love to others through service. Finally, there was something else that happened in that room when Jesus touched those men and bathed their feet. It was a symbol of cleansing that they needed, even though they had been baptized already. It was revealed in the encounter with Peter once again when he said, Peter said, Well, then, Lord, wash me all over. And Jesus said, I don't need to do that. You've already been washed. It was as if he was saying to Peter, Peter, you aren't filthy. You've listened to my words, and you're passionate, but you aren't perfect either. You don't need to be rebaptized, but your feet have picked up a little dirt along the way, and it needs to be cleansed now. Let me make you clean again. It's an invitation that he extends to us today. Do we want the cleansing, healing touch of Jesus? Have you picked up a little dirt on your feet between now and the last time? Perhaps you need this cleansing as a reminder of what your baptism means. If you're a committed disciple of Christ, do you want to have a part with Jesus today? The communion service is a gift that's been given to us. Some aren't comfortable with the foot washing, I get that. But it also has the foot washing, we ingest the food, We drink the wine. He's given us a physical means to celebrate and use the senses that we have to celebrate what he can do for us today. If you're looking for a hands-on experience to experience Jesus today, then you've come to the right place here. Here today we have the symbols. You have the physical experience of the upper room. We have Jesus reaching out to touch us. Will you receive it with us today? Our foot washing will be taking place downstairs today. You can see the instructions on the the screens. Downstairs, the ladies will be in the primary Sabbath school room. The upper grade classrooms will be the men, and the fellowship hall will be there for couples today. We invite you at this church. We have an open communion, so everyone is invited to participate. Um, And we look forward to a great experience remembering who Jesus is. I'd like to bow our heads as we begin our transition. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for remembering everything, for knowing our needs, for knowing that we need to be celebrated, and that we need to celebrate you. We ask, dear Lord, that today we will feel your spirit here, and our relationships will remind each of us, of the care, the love, and the concern you have for all of us. Be with us. Help us to be spiritually cleansed and renewed today. In Jesus' name, amen. When you return today, there will be cords on each of the pews. Please sit in the row with the cords. That just makes it easier to pass out the bread and the wine. All right, thank you. And for children, there will be a children's story right up front, and Rod Metcalf will be having that for you today.